0: People say things like, you know, if we just had a woman in this role, everything would be better. If we just had a black person or an immigrant or, you know, insert whatever identity, then things would be better. But the reality is white supremacy can be carried out by black people. It can be carried out by women. It's not just identity in and of itself that changes the ways that politics happens.
1: Welcome to another episode of Who Belongs, a podcast by the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. In this episode of Who Belongs, we hear from Alicia Garza, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement and the principal of the Black Futures Lab, which is an organization that engages black voters year-round and works to stop corporate influence in progressive politics. Alicia recently authored a paper for the Othering and Belonging Institute titled Identity Politics, Friend or Foe, which this episode will draw from. Alicia will also give her take on some of the candidates running in the 2020 U.S. presidential election and how they approach identity politics. This episode is part of our Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project series and will be guest-hosted by Gerald Bunwar, who is the Institute's Identity and Politics Strategy Analyst and the former Executive Director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. He's also a former Executive Director of the San Francisco Black Coalition on AIDS. Here was their conversation.
2: You wrote a paper titled Identity Politics, Friend or Foe uh, for the Othering and Belonging Institute uh, around the issues of identity politics and civic engagement. I wonder if we could start by talking about what made you decide it was important to publish a paper on that topic at this moment.
0: I decided to publish a paper on this topic right now because for the last four years we've been in what I think are very surface-level conversations about the ways in which race and identity uh, shapes people's behaviors, patterns, and activities. And in the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election, uh, I think that we can say, certainly, uh, that it is women and people of color and people who feel like they are left out of the political process who, when activated, uh, take action along their experiences. Unfortunately, though, some of the autopsy coming out of the 2016 election is that to talk about race or gender or anything else besides class and the way that it shapes people's political preferences and what they want and need out of politics, there's a narrative that to talk about that in any kind of way Uh, actually divides people and turns them off as opposed to uh, the potential that it could be a unifying mechanism for the ways in which people take action together. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. reason that I think that that's a flawed message is that we absolutely did in 2016 see uh, the American electorate come together around race and class and gender it just wasn't in the ways that we had hoped for. And that's actually how we ended up um, with the current president and the current administration. There was an activation of white identity politics that certainly won the day. And so I felt it was important for us to talk about identity politics in a way that goes around the discussion of whether it's polarizing or not, and really just deals with it on its face, and then looks at different ways to mobilize and galvanize identity politics in the pursuit of a visionary and progressive agenda.
2: So talk a little bit about how that identity politics helped to bridge across difference.
0: I mean, if we look at 2016 and we look at the outcomes, I think a lot of people say, how did this happen? And the simplest way to say it is that there was a coalition that came together across um, uh, class and across gender and in defense of race. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of ways in which people have said things like uh, the current president got elected because uh, it was, you know, white, um, uneducated people in rural areas uh, who didn't really know what they were doing. But the fact of the matter is the whole campaign that this president uh, advanced was very much centered around protecting white power, uh, defending white identity, and also creating villains out of those for whom, uh, uh, those who would say that um, white identity politics aren't the only identity politics that deserve attention. Uh, they weaponized, right, the, the defense of white identity against that agenda. And the result, quite frankly, is that you saw a cross-class coalition and a intergender coalition coming together uh, to elect what I would argue uh, is a white nationalist uh, 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 proto-fascist president. Now, uh, in 2018, I think we saw a swing to the other side of that, right? I think that people uh, in places like Alabama, people in places like Virginia, uh, people in places like Georgia and Florida you know, decisively said uh, that actually, there are more voices that deserve to be included in the political process beyond those who are white, beyond those who are wealthy, uh, and beyond those who are male. And so I think what we really see here is a contestation for the identity politics of this nation, uh, is this only is America only going to be a place where white people um, are safe and secure and have their needs met, or are we actually going to move toward uh, the more pluralized America that uh, that most of us right think that America can be?
2: Yeah, that's very much in line with the uh, framework and analysis that we are. Uh, Work, working on in the Othering and Belonging Institute, this notion of fostering a new progressive identity that bridges across established identities. You know, I came of age in the 1960s when the notion of people of color was born. They signified a common identity and a common struggle against white supremacy and, and against economic exploitation. Uh, so do you think that is something that is occurring at this p- uh, political moment, that this new progressive identity is beginning to be formed?
0: I do, and I think it's not a guarantee that without organizing and without clarity that a new coalition gets formed that is not just focused on representation, but that is also focused on uh, a, a different way of doing politics in the first place. One of the dangers, I think, that I actually agree with my opposition on uh, when we talk about identity politics is that it's identity for identity's sake. And so on both the left and the right, uh, people say things like, you know, if we just had a woman in this role, everything would be better. If we just had a black person or an immigrant or, Mm -hmm. you know, insert whatever identity, then things would be better. But the reality is, right, white supremacy can be carried out by black people, it can be carried out by women, Uh, you know, it's it's not just identity in and of itself that changes the ways that politics happens. It's identity plus a different vision for how identity or how politics should happen that actually creates the kinds of change that we want to see. And so I think with this paper, what we attempted to do was actually bring that together, was to talk about the ways in which the identities that we hold are not so much badges of honor as they are markers for how we experience the systems that shape our society, Mm -hmm. how we experience the economy, how we experience our democracy, how we experience our communities, and that we take those experiences into the ways that we act politically. And so if there are places that are organizing us, those of us who are being left out of the spoils, right, of um, <laughs> uh, the, the, dis- the distribution of the ways in which uh, these assets and levels of access um, are distributed, if we organize around that and also organize around a different vision for how things can be distributed while also lifting up that the reason that things are distributed unequally is because they serve to uh, uh, keep us apart and divided then we can accomplish amazing things. I'll give a quick example. What was so amazing about Stacey Abrams in Georgia and her run for governor was not just that she would have been, and in my opinion did become, uh, the first black woman to be governor in the history of not only that state, uh, but certainly one of the first in the country. It was the vision that she was organizing people around through her campaign. Stacey Abrams was brilliant in a number of different ways. She was able to bring together poor white people with poor and working class black people and people of color, folks who had been left out of the political process, and she gave them something to vote for. She offered a vision where everybody could be included. She offered a vision for how to transform the systems that intentionally kept people away from the resources that they need to live well and she gave them a vehicle to participate in. And I can tell you that on election night, I was in Georgia and I saw a multiracial group of people who were waiting to cast their vote for her. They were waiting in lines that were two and three hours long. There were elderly people, there were young people with babies, and when you talk to everybody and you ask them why were they standing there knowing that they had been there for hours and that it was possible they wouldn't be able to cast their vote, they said two things. Number one, Stacey was their preferred candidate. But number two, that they understood the context in which they were meeting to cast this vote. They understood what was at stake if they walked out of that polling place. And they also understood what was at stake if Stacey were able to take that seat. That's the kind of identity politics organizing that we need to transform democracy in America.
2: It reminds me, going back to 1984, I was part of the Jesse Jackson for President campaign, where we had uh, a black-led movement uh, based upon a populist message, but it was an anti-racist populist message that brought people together uh, across the racial spectrum uh, on a, with a very progressive platform around the rights of women, around immigrant rights, Around uh, uh, issues of affirmative action for African Americans, a whole range of issues that resonated across uh, uh, the the political in in uh, racial spectrum. So, I th- I think what you're describing in in uh, Georgia has precedence. and I and I think that uh, that we need to study history and bring it forward because. Uh, this phenomenon continues to happen historically over and over again where we come together, and how to consolidate that and, and bring it uh, to full fruition is a challenge.
0: Absolutely, and I'll say you know, one of those big challenges uh, that I think the Rainbow Coalition faced, the Obama Coalition faced, and certainly uh, the next Stacey Abrams Coalition will face is this question of how do we put our money where our mouths are. Mm-hmm. So in every campaign, right, whether it be the Jesse Jackson campaign, the Obama campaign, the Stacey Abrams campaign, there is a galvanizing of hope for change. Uh, and I think that message has been used intermittently throughout the decades. And yet one of the major things uh, that we face as Uh, a coalition of people who want to see change happen is that we haven't clearly articulated the change that we want to see and how we know when we'll get it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the challenges with the Obama coalition is that it essentially disintegrated after he was elected and had a very hard time holding him accountable. And part of that, right, had to do with identity without a program (laughs) right so people didn't want to hold him accountable because he was the first black president of the united states and folk were worried about what accountability looked like under those conditions did it undermine the fact that the first black person to ever hold that office uh was holding that office and and i think you know one of the reasons that i feel so strongly as you do about both you know understanding that there's maybe nothing new under the sun, but that we could always be doing it better, but also understanding that identity in and of itself is not enough, is that I I do feel that we are approaching one of the most important election cycles of my generation. And what happens in November of next year uh, is going to dictate what happens in this country over the next decade or more. So we've got a shot to get it right, but we also, of course, have a shot to get it wrong. And my hope is that we're able to learn the lessons of the Rainbow Coalition, the Obama Coalition, the Stacey Abrams Coalition, and bring the best to bear for what happens in 2020, but also leave behind some of those pesky uh, barriers that we just have not seemed to have the right strategy to get around.
2: I want to probe again something you mentioned about Identity politics is not in and of itself what we're looking for. Because I think sometimes identity politics can be politics that, uh, that don't bridge, that we become insular in our identity politics. Is that something that you've run across and, and, and how do you challenge identity politics that uh, is breaking, that it doesn't connect uh, and, and help to create a larger identity?
0: That's a really important question and one I'm excited to answer. i spent a lot of time thinking about this. And as somebody who has been in movement with you, Gerald, for, you know, many a moon, uh, (laughs) and who also has had the privilege of being amongst people who are just coming into movement for the first time uh, in the last decade or so, uh, I think you're right that there is a real danger that – our identity politics can not only be underdeveloped, but they can certainly uh, be insular and uh, divisive. And there's many ways that that happens, I think intentionally and not intentionally. And so I wanna talk a little bit about the intentional part because those are things we can do something about. Uh, First and foremost, I always say that it's important that we understand that identity politics is not oppression Olympics. Um, There is no need, right, for for any of us um, to really talk about how we're more oppressed than somebody else. The existence of oppression in and of itself is the problem and so we've gotta attack that. And the reality is the ways in which people get left out or left behind are actually quite sophisticated. Um, They are not in this day and age uh, largely Um, Expressed in the ways that people tend to talk about it sometimes, which is, you know, uh, 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 clear images that people have about oppression, right? Like um, what happened in Nazi Germany, right? Where, um, you know, Jewish people were rounded up and in large scale put into concentration camps and murdered. Or here in the United States, right? Where you had the active engagement and presence of groups like the Ku Klux Klan, um, who were, you know, um, uh, explicitly and visibly racist and discriminatory. Uh, Our systems and our structures have adapted themselves uh, to being able to still function in those terrible ways, but to do so in such a way where um, uh, uh, we fight each other over crumbs as opposed to have our focus, right? On, on who it is that benefits from all of us not having what we need. And so in some, there are some ways where I see uh, identity politics rhetoric saying things like, uh, things that are, I think, mischaracterizations of, of how people have defined identity politics. So I saw something on social media not too long ago, uh, a young uh, uh, you know, activist saying, you know, well, identity politics aren't for white people. And intersectionality is not for white people. And I thought to myself, well, I don't actually agree with that. I think Mm -hmm. that the reality is, right, that all of these things are constructed and they're constructed around the distribution of power. Mm -hmm. And so if we were to say that all white people have power and all people who are not white don't have power, that's not actually a nuanced analysis of how these systems work. And frankly, if we don't have that level of nuanced analysis, we don't have a shot at building the kinds of strategies that can dismantle theirs. Uh, And so that's one thing. We're not all racing to be the most oppressed. We're racing to make sure that nobody, right, is without the things that they need. So that's one piece. I do think the second piece that's really important for us to pick up and really challenge, right, is uh, the ways in which we uh, can, in the progressive movement, really weaponize identity politics in a way that kind of has us in each other's, um, in opposite corners, I should say, Mm -hmm. and not willing to talk about the elephant in the room. I can't tell you how many progressive organizations or uh, coalitions I've been a part of, uh, where as soon as we start to talk about anything besides class, It's almost like people fold into each other and get really uncomfortable because suddenly the thing that was supposedly unifying everybody uh, no longer is unifying everyone. But the reality is I think there's a way in which difference can unify us even further. The United States has this narrative that we are all the same, and the narrative uh, itself is fundamentally untrue, But it is what keeps these systems functioning. When we have messages that say things like, you know, if you work hard enough you can achieve, uh, that assumes that everybody is playing from an equal playing field, right? Um, If we start to talk about, though, the ways in which the playing field has been made unequal um, and how those inequalities mirror each other, the mirroring doesn't actually have to be the same for inequality to be the bad guy. Right. So if I'm, for example, if we're to talk about wages and as a black woman, I'm making sixty one cents to every dollar that white men make. Right. And uh, as a black man, Gerald, you might be making, you know, seventy one cents to every dollar that white men make. well, we need to talk about, and then as a trans woman, she might be making 23 cents to every dollar that white men make. Yeah. And for the 61 cents I'm making and the 71 cents you're making, I think there's a conversation for us to be having together about you know, what are the ways in which those differing levels of inequality right, can either keep us away from each other or can help us form stronger coalitions that help us fight the gaps that we all have between that white man's dollar right yeah. Yeah. and then our strategies actually get deeper to say how do we make sure that we're not just closing the gap between your wage and the white man's wage but how do we make sure we're actually starting at the 23 cents knowing that if we start there then my wages are going to go up at 61 and yours are going to go up at 71 right so Those are, you know, uh, just examples of the ways in which difference is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Difference actually gives us clearer uh, vision for what kinds of strategies we have to build in order to win and who else gets brought into the coalition. And to be honest, what our opposition does really well that we're still working on Mm -hmm. (laughs) is that They build unlikely coalitions, right? They are very smart about um, having uh, different wings of their resistance and knowing that they're not going to agree on everything, but they have a common goal. So to be honest, the Wall Street people don't like the Tea Party people, but you know what they like? Power. (laughs) The Wall Street people don't like Donald Trump, but you know what they like? Power. And so they are really adept, right, at figuring out um, how to not only find out what they have in common, but how to leverage their differences in pursuit of the power that they are seeking.
2: Yes, I totally agree with that. I think there's a, there's a narrative of scarcity uh, operating as a dominant narrative, and, and so we often see ourselves in competition with each other, as you were saying about the uh, oppression Olympics. And so uh, there's only... S- so much of this pie that we have to divide up uh, and and so we're in competition you know i ran into that in uh i was uh as you know i was the founding director of the black alliance for just immigration and when i came into the movement in 2006 there was uh, a narrative operating in the immigrant rights movement that uh that we are the new civil rights movement and and I'm talking to African Americans are saying, the new civil rights movement. What about the old civil rights movement? You know, and this narrative of it's our ter- it's our turn, you know, trying to uh, say that you've had your turn as African Americans. Now it's our turn. And so there was a lot of uh, a lot of our work within the Black Alliance for Just Immigration was to try to bridge that gap between African Americans and immigrants, especially African immigrants, but also Latino immigrants, in trying to get groups to understand that there's a common struggle against white supremacy and there's a common humanity and a common destiny that we have to realize and and begin to tell stories that connect us. So this whole notion of migration, the African American migration, and the parallels between the African-American migration and immigration was something that we used to say, look, we have similar experiences. We have similar experiences in terms of migration, in terms of fighting racism, and that we need to come together in a social movement that challenges the dominant narrative. So let's turn to uh, democratic politics, the primary, and uh, there's a whole lot to discuss in that but let me first just ask you a more general question from your perspective in the conversation you've been having how much do you think that candidates matter i ask because some people think that candidates are everything and others say that with the stakes of this election coming up the really consequential differences in where the outcome will take our country and our planet people will be motivated no matter who is running So how much do candidates matter uh, in getting people out uh, and in motivating people to get to the polls?
0: Yeah, this is an important question. I mean, I think candidates matter, but what matters more than candidates is agendas. And, you know, in my work at the Black Futures Lab, I can tell you that uh, we conducted one of, if not the largest survey of black people in America in 154 years. Mm -hmm. And with 30,000 people across the country from every state in America, uh, the overwhelming majority of people who took our survey said that they believe that politicians don't care about black people. And so, you know, if you're coming into these elections and you're, focused only on candidates, you should know that for black communities, we're not under any sort of illusion that candidates um, are the end-all be-all to uh, the pursuit of racial and social justice in America. At the same time, um, it is candidates with a progressive vision for what America can look like, but also how to make America live up to its promise of what it says that it is, uh, it is those candidates that tend to rise to the top when it comes to black voters in particular. And so, you know, certainly uh, I think that in this upcoming cycle, it is important to push candidates around their agendas, otherwise we end up with politics as usual, which is that. uh, it's based on personality and whether or not we would, like, have them over for dinner, as opposed to what is their plan um, to advance uh, my quality of life? And bigger than that, right, what is their plan to include me in the decision-making processes that impact my life and the lives of the people who I care about? I think that one of the things that we've been really trying to push candidates on is to have a broader Uh, and better and more sharp analysis of how people's experiences in the economy, in our democracy, and in our society should be shaping their policies around not just equal pay or, uh, you know, Medicare for all or healthcare, right? But how do you actually get into some of this specificity to make sure that your policies don't leave people behind? And I'll give a couple examples. So the first example, I think, is that we have been in conversation with a lot of campaigns, and one of the things that we notice is that uh, uh, candidates tend to use the words criminal justice uh, to appeal to and talk to black communities. But in our survey, we found that while criminal justice reform uh, and you know, uh, police oversight and police accountability were certainly high on the list of issues that were important to black people, definitely in the top 10. Um, In some states, it was in the top five. But the number one issue that black people cared about from our survey was low wages that were not enough to support a family. And so if candidates are not able to uh, build out an agenda that looks at the relationship between economic justice and criminal justice, then they're not going to get far with black communities. Whenever, you know, candidates are talking about the economy, <coughs> excuse me. whenever candidates are talking about the economy, they're talking about the economy, but they're talking to people who they envision are white, working-class folks who live in rural areas. <laughs> and that's important to talk to those folks. But it's also to say uh, that the working class is not only white. Uh, the working class is actually predominantly um, people of color and women. And so you've got to be able to cut these issues in such a way where you are capturing the experiences, the specific experiences, of how women or people of color or immigrants are being left out of economic prosperity, and how do you create a society where they are then included. Um, so that's another example. Last one I'll just offer here very quickly is that you know, I watched the last debate, which I thought was interesting where it was the first time that an all-woman panel of moderators had been used um, in the Democratic debates. And interestingly, and I have a lot of commentary and thoughts about that, but uh, (laughs) that's for another podcast. (laughs) But interestingly, it was one of the first discussions that I saw on a national debate stage in the absence of uh, the presence of, Candidates like Kristen Gillibrand, who made their whole platform about issues important to women, uh, that the other candidates on the stage who were not women had to talk about uh, their plans to address um, issues that disproportionately impact women, issues like childcare or paid family leave or equal pay. And interestingly, although probably not surprisingly, uh, it took a lot of muscle for candidates to be able to have uh, a well-versed answer um, on how they would address these issues that certainly impact everybody and disproportionately impact women and impact women uniquely. Um, And so it was almost like watching somebody who hadn't exercised for a long time trying to lift weights, right? It was a struggle to talk about uh, childcare in a nuanced way where people mostly talked about paid family leave, but they didn't also talk about the worker angle of it, of which you know, 90% of the workforce that deals with childcare is women. Um, and so I think these are examples of how candidates matter, sure, but their agendas matter more. And when we push on their agendas to get them to be sharper, And when we push on candidates to not be afraid of identity politics because some pundit told them that it divides people, then we actually get better prospects for uh, a vision of governance that is actually democratic, that involves the people who are closest to the problem, who have a lot of ideas about how to uh, bring forward solutions that benefit everybody.
2: Well, you know, I'm, I, I know you're aware of this uh, sharp critique of identity politics uh, and this notion that we need to uh, have someone quote-unquote electable uh, in that uh, we should submerge identity for the greater good. Well, what's, what do you think about that line of thinking?
0: I just don't think it's possible, I'll be honest. Um, you know, any time people try to submerge, quote-unquote, identity for the greater good, it actually comes up in, 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 in force. And, you know, again, I, I think that, um, and I believe I said this in this paper, that I think that the reason that people don't want to talk about identity is because they want to obscure how power is actually functioning and operating. And this notion that to talk about race or to talk about gender is divisive is really to say I don't want you to expose, (laughs) right, Mm -hmm. the unequal distribution of power that I've received, right, at your expense. I think that it's time to blow the lid open on the ways in which power operates in this country so that we can finally see once and for all who's benefiting and who's not. And the reality is it's, you know, The half percent of the 1% that is getting over on everybody and the rest of us are fighting each other, not for crumbs, but for um, the abundance that the one-half of the 1% has been benefiting from for a very long time. Uh, You know, I I will be honest that I don't know who I'm supporting in this race yet, Mm -hmm. but I can say that um, what I hope for from this election in 2020. Uh, is for the American electorate to get a lot more clear about who's really benefiting from all of the ways in which we're suffering. And my hope is that with a more nuanced and engaged uh, analysis and interaction with the ways that people live their lives every single day, we can actually move the needle on some of the things that are hurting all of us.
2: So going back to the last debate, you know, Kamala Harris said something that folks organizing on the ground have been saying for a long time. That is that black women have been showing up for years for candidates that win, and then they don't always show up for them. And in the meanwhile, Joe Biden said that he has overwhelming support from African Americans, and he feels pretty confident. We know that the polls show that Biden is ahead with black voters. So what do you make of that?
0: (laughs) Well, where do I start? Um, (laughs) Let's start with polls and data. Um, I am not sure. I I think that uh, there's been a lot of talk about Joe Biden having the majority support of black voters. uh, And I think that that is a misnomer. I think if we look deep into those polls and who they've talked to and how many people they've talked to, I think that what we can mostly say is that a snapshot of people who were surveyed at a given time of a certain age um, had support for one candidate. Uh, I think what we know is that, um, you know, when we start to look at the details of polls We start to understand what they're actually saying as opposed to what we want them to say. And I think what Joe Biden's campaign wants us to believe is that they have a lot of black support, when I think that the reality is is that um, the Biden campaign has a lot of name recognition, and that is different from that's the person that I'm going to vote for in November, or frankly, if he makes it to November, let's even start earlier and say that's the person who I'm going to vote for in the primaries. In relationship to what Kamala Harris said, I think she's absolutely right. I think it's uh, black women in particular, but I think black people in general are consistently being asked to step up to save uh, a democracy that wasn't built for us. Um, And we do that because we have um, a never-ending, undying hope that one day it will. And I think the reality is that um, the relationship between black communities and the Democratic Party in particular has been incredibly transactional. And I think we have to talk about that. I think we've got to talk about it differently, perhaps, than, than Senator Harris is. I think the, the way she's talking about it is the start of it. But I think it's actually a party question. And the party question is, um, what are you going to invest in black communities to ensure not just turnout when you need us, but also how do um, the concerns that black people have in America get wrapped into the Democratic Party platform that is going to be rolled out, right, in in July uh, when a nominee is being chosen? Uh, How do the numbers shape up in terms of how much money is being invested in black communities for voter engagement and voter turnout? I can tell you in California, uh, in the last election cycle, it was less than $5 million, Mm -hmm. significantly less, Uh, when, you know, the the numbers for outreach to uh, white suburban communities and people who they think are going to turn out to vote is much, much higher. And so it is a party question, not just a candidate question, and um, it is reflective, right, of a transactional relationship that American democracy has to black communities in general.
2: The other uh, thing that comes up in uh, this primary season is uh, this notion that Pete Buttigieg has had trouble connecting with black voters because he's gay. This sounds like a to me like it's a blaming and shaming the black community. It's an old trope that African Americans are more homophobic than the dominant society. But it also made me think about your paper and how there is so often assumed a white norm, and we're talking about a lot of these other forms of difference around gender, sexuality, or ability. What do you make of this line of thinking on Bu- Buddha Buddha's Edge and Black voters? Buttigieg. Buddha Edge. Buddha, <laughs> Buddha Edge and Black Buddha <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I'm like, for once, we're having to learn how to pronounce their names. I'm telling you. vice versa. I'm telling uh, you. <laughs> so, uh, so here's the deal um, I, I've been very vocal about this because. It is a mistake that many campaigns make and that they will continue to make until they start taking black votes seriously. You know, I think the Buttigieg campaign did themselves some real damage with black voters uh, with the the leak of this focus group and the results of that focus group in South Carolina. I think that, um, you know, what I find interesting is that a lot of these candidates, from Andrew Yang to Pete Buttigieg, really railed on identity politics when they entered the race and now suddenly they're hanging their hat on it right mm, yeah. um and weaponizing it against black voters in ways that are totally insulting and lack any kind of foundation sure are there black people who are homophobic and won't vote for a gay candidate because they're homophobic of course There are also white voters who are homophobic and won't vote for a gay candidate because they are homophobic. But the reality is, as you said, um, black people are not more um, homophobic than white people. And frankly, um, the majority of black queer people, people who identify as lesbian or gay or bisexual, transgender, the majority of those people live in the South. Like, literally live in the South. And so, to say, right, um, to say that black voters are more homophobic, I mean, how do you explain black voters who are gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender who are also not supporting Pete Buttigieg? It's not that he has, uh, you know, a lot of black support amongst um, people who are queer, uh, he has no black support. And so, he's not been able to explain that. But I can explain it for you, and I think some of it is about name recognition, but I also think some of it is about the fact that he really has very little literacy um, in talking about, with real authenticity, what it is that black communities are experiencing in democracy, in our economy, and in our communities. We've had several conversations about, you know, what we found in our census, and, gave some advice to that campaign about um, how to make their uh, platform a little more relevant to the experiences of more Black people. Um, Their platform is largely focused around other tropes that I think people talk to Black communities about, like wealth generation or entrepreneurship or home ownership, all things that we totally love and out of reach for most Black people in America. So it's like to design a whole platform and program around things that only impact, you know, maybe 25 percent of our communities or at least are in reach to very few of us. And then to name the plan after a famous black person from yesteryear uh, really just shows that like. They're a little bit out of touch with not only the ways black communities are changing in America, meaning you know, the populations of black immigrants have increased dramatically over the last 10 years. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the percentage of people who openly identify as gay and lesbian and bisexual in the black community have changed dramatically over the last 10 years. The number of people who are falling farther down the economic spectrum has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. And unfortunately, that plan, um, whether you call it the Douglas Plan or the Madam C.J. Walker Plan or whatever kind of arena that they're in where they name it after a different black person, um, doesn't change the fact that they seem to still be really out of touch with uh, what everyday black folks are dealing with in today's America. And that is why in our assessment, um, there hasn't been much support of Pete Buttigieg as a candidate from black voters in America.
2: Yeah, yeah, it becomes very mechanical. There's there's really no historical connection to the black community or the issues that we care about.
0: Mm-hmm. We also saw a big um, gaffe from their campaign around police violence in South Bend. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we yes. all watched the town hall on CNN where... Yeah. Uh, it, it was not only concerning, but again, it reinforced that the relationships need to be stronger and deeper uh, for that name recognition to grow, but also for trust to be had that the vision and the values are aligned.
2: Now, I, I want to turn to one of your newest projects. I know that you and Ajin Poo, the executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and Cecily Richards, the former head of Planned Parenthood, have formed a new membership organization called Supermajority. So talk to us about that effort to bridge with women across the racial divide based upon a feminist agenda.
0: You know, I am so excited about this initiative because I think a lot of us are talking about how do we build a multiracial democracy where we all belong, and I think it really does start in our organizing efforts. You know, over the last five years, we have seen um, social movements emerge um, all over this country, whether it be Occupy Wall Street or the Women's March, which was the largest mobilization of women in the history of this country, uh, to Black Lives Matter, right? I mean, we've seen, to Idle No More and the Standing Rock movement. I mean, we have really seen um, an unprecedented level of political activity, and yet, I think there's so much work still to be done that is able to bring our struggles into alignment to add up to something more than the sum of our parts. And so for us, you know, Supermajority is really a place where we are bringing people together focused on women, but bringing women together to figure out how do we leverage our power? We are all mad as hell, and I think women in particular want a rematch from 2016, and yet there's a ton of uh, foundational things uh, that are needed in order for women to be the political force that we are projected to be in 2020 and beyond. Um, So our goal is really to be a home for women who want to be active, who want to be engaged, who want to um, build relationships beyond their own, you know, known communities. And in that vein, we are training women to be powerful in the 2020 election, and we are also ready to launch in the fall uh, the largest woman-to-woman voter contact program in the history of this country, galvanizing 2 million women in advance of November 2020. So I'm really excited to be able to bring, you know, what I have to bear from uh, you know, my years of experience in organizing across this country um, and, and, and helping to galvanize black folks across this country in defense of our lives. And I'm stoked to be doing it with um, two of the baddest sisters that I know, um, Aijen Poo, who has built an incredible movement of women uh, who are literally in the shadows of the economy and building uh, domestic workers into a powerful political force that just this year resulted in the introduction of a federal domestic worker bill of rights uh, at a time when not much federal legislation is getting introduced. Uh, And Cecile Richards, who is the powerhouse behind uh, not only uh, the success of Planned Parenthood but the redemption of Planned Parenthood um, under withering attacks from this administration. So I'm really honored to see what we can come up with and frankly, to join with the multitude of efforts that are underway, uh, again, to build something that is bigger than the sum of our parts, to charge beyond the status quo, and to make sure that we're building the kind of infrastructure that never gets us back in this place again.
1: wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guest, Alicia Garza, a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement and the principal of the Black Futures Lab organization working to engage black voters year round. To learn more about that organization, visit their website at blackfutureslab.org. I'd also like to thank Gerald Lenoir, the Institute's identity and politics strategy analyst and former executive director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration for conducting this interview. For a transcript of this episode, visit us online at belonging.berkeley.edu/who-belongs. Thank you for listening.